Hi, I'm Dave Ferguson, pastor of the Collegedale Church here on the campus of Southern Adventist University. Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in Scripture to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. Happy Sabbath to you. It's good to be with you today as we continue our revival series and we uh, take on another topic. It's been a little bit of a gap for me. I've been on vacation and so I'm delighted to be back with you for this, our topic, certain, certain. I'd like to invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 5, and while you turn to 1 John chapter 5, I'd like to address a couple of questions uh, that we get with some regularity, especially knowing that our board decided that we would have only have our face-to-face services outdoors until at least the end of July. So what's happening now? We've got one more week in July. I want you to be aware of what's going on. As you search for 1 John chapter 5, that little tiny book toward the end near Revelation, we met again this last, uh, this last Tuesday evening with our board. And by the way, for those of us that are asking the question, when will the church open? I just want to say to you, the church never closed. We have been open this whole time. And if you see me wiping sweat, it's because I'm still getting acclimated to the fact that I was outdoors preaching just a few minutes ago. We have, of course, our 9 o'clock connect at the Goliath Wall in our revival series. And then at 10.30, we have our adoration in the park service. And then this, our stream-only service. So as we uh, met to deliberate and to decide what we're going to do from here, some of you already know it because you read it on our website. I just want you to hear it from me. Uh, And I'm so thankful for our board's careful deliberation. I'll jump straight to the decision and then I would like to unpack it a little bit. We have decided as a board that it is our most responsible choice, even though it's getting hotter, to stay with outdoor services as our face-to-face services. We are likely to be able to start offering a couple of additional things. I think we're going to be soon having a outdoor family Sabbath school, kind of a hybrid of Sabbath school elements and children's church outdoors. We have a, a large tent that's going to be pitched by the university for campus ministries and student activities and the church activities. And so campus ministries, once they get going with the school year, will be holding their um, there are Vespers in that location. We'll probably will hold another worship service, Merge, our gospel worship service there. So we'll keep you posted on the additional things you can be looking for. But I just want to tell you, obviously, in the news and in our county, the conversation has been going on about what is happening as the numbers climb and rise. Uh, and I just want you to know that as we prayed and thought about it, we... Um, we we want you to know a couple things. First of all, the county has mandated certain things that do not apply to churches or places of worship. And the reason that that is true is not because it wouldn't be safe or good or a wise idea, but rather they want us to have religious freedom and don't want that to become a contest, and we respect and thank that avoidance entirely. But now that means we have to make decisions. And as we have read what the county has mandated and the county's wording in doing so, asking that when indoors we wear masks, mandating that. When uh, outdoors that we socially distance uh, six feet and when that isn't able to be maintained that we wear masks even outdoors. Their desire is that we curb the growing numbers and their frustration is that 
um, best practice they feel hasn't been followed. And so we interpreted that as an implicit request of us, a faith community, to help with this and that we would like to participate in the good health of our community. And you may be on any, any point in the spectrum of whether it's helpful or not to wear masks and all of that, but we've decided we want to be a participant in our community being a witness to the fact that we want to help in that. I'll give you a second issue that's a really big one. We're rolling into August here and our school system is hoping to open. Uh, there are a lot of conversations about exactly how that goes. Every time we get that all figured out and settled, then another question comes up and it just keeps spinning round and round and round. Our university is about to invite students back on our campus. We are the university church. Education is a huge piece of our mission. And we believe it is our duty to help our university and our school system to be able to open safely. And as we've heard the stories of some of the super spreading events that have gone on in our community, it strikes us that we could create problems if we don't sacrifice just a little bit at this time. And we're, by the way, gifted and privileged to have opportunities that other churches do not. We have spaces in our partnership with the university that allow us to continue worshiping outdoors. And we're hoping to uh, work on those even further. But so the, the mandate from the, from the county, this implicit request, please, please help us curb the numbers through September 8th, means that we've decided through September 8th, we're going to stick with our outdoor only uh, face-to-face and then this streaming event. Um, and so that would put us at the 12th of September, but we'll be taking a look as we go. As you know, this is an ongoing conversation. I realize not everybody would have made the decision that our board did. But you've asked this board to make these kinds of decisions and, and it is with much prayer and concern and care and courage that, that uh, they have done so. And so I really appreciate those who have served in that capacity and your understanding in the meantime. I bought you plenty of time to find First John chapter 5, by the way. I don't care how difficult it is. You could have gone to the table of contents and figured it out by now. So here we are, First John chapter 5, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, the 13th. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Could it be that Jesus Christ, here among us in his spirit, what his great desire would be for you and for me this morning would be that you and I this morning, now turned afternoon, that we could be certain in our standing with Jesus. I don't know how you were brought up spiritually, whether you came to Jesus in the middle of your life or what story of God has been running around the turntables, the loops in your head. It's possible that you, like some others I know, have felt that God is kind of interested in us being off balance in our relationship with him, always wondering if we're acceptable, probably filled with a lot of self-loathing. Maybe you've heard it in our prayers, Lord, we know we don't deserve you, and that is true, but that's not the perspective God spends his greatest energies drilling into. He wants you to know, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are a prince, you are a princess, you are an heir to the kingdom, and I want you to be certain today. So across these airwaves, whether you're listening to me live right now or into the future, today, Jesus wants you to know where you stand with him. And you 
can live the life of freedom. That freedom, the Gospels would say, when the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. I want to pray, and then we're going to dive into more scripture. Father, thank you very much for your love. We thank you for our community, those that we know well, those we don't so much. I thank you for the opportunity to talk together, whether face-to-face out in the park or across the airwaves today. What privilege we have to be a family together. Help us to, help us to open our hearts. Lord, I want to claim the promise that you intend for us to have a certainty in our relationship with you, not teetering, wobbling, wondering. In Jesus' name, I ask that you send your spirit to give us that certainty. Amen. Well, here we are discussing the subject of certainty. I've just come off a vacation. You might have noticed I've been gone for the last couple of weeks, Matt. Uh, and that's because I've been on vacation. Our, our children all came together. We spent a week of vacation just right here, just going up to Hiawassee and floating or to Par- Parksville Lake on a pontoon boat or those kinds of things. And then for that second week, we figured out just the right location and spot where we could feel comfortable and safe even taking uh, my mother-in-law, Carolyn's mom, to get our feet into the sand out in a bunch of seclusion. And it was just wonderful. But then, then we come back. And arriving back here... I discovered that, in fact, uh, I was due to give the staff worship on Tuesday morning (laughs) when I asked, oh, wait, by the way, who's got staff worship? You do. Ah, awesome. Well, so that gave me about 24 hours notice. I did a little bit of thinking, and I was just filled with this sense, coming back Sunday night, filled with this sense of vacation. And so I asked our staff a question I'd like to ask you. Is there some location where just the sight of it makes you feel like vacation is happening? There are some other ones. There are some sites where you see that certain thing, you hear that certain sound, you maybe even smell a certain smell, and you know you're working now, right? But is there a place that when you see it, immediately you think vacation? I want to tell you about the one that is most powerful in my mind, and I'm going to show you this particular bridge right here. This is the bridge... Uh, that we would cross probably about 10 years. How many years would it have been? I'm about to sneeze. Pardon me, I didn't get my mic in time. Ah, there you go. I feel so much better. I I think I'm going to take a drink of water. This is a bridge over the Indian River Inlet. It's got ocean, if you see at the top of the screen, this is all open Atlantic Ocean. This is going into the bay and the harbor there. And uh, if, if you know what you're looking at, if you've been ever to Ocean City, which we would go at the end of the summer to Ocean City, Maryland, year after year after year after year, and when we got to this point, I felt like I was on vacation. We'd be driving along, coming down through Pennsylvania, around the Philadelphia area, bypassing Philadelphia, traipsing down through Uh, Highway 113 in Delaware past Dover, and then we'd spin off on Highway 1 and head out past Luz, if you know these names, and Rehoboth Beach and Dewey Beach, and then finally to this particular bridge, and we'd come off this bridge onto Fenwick Island, and the land would continue. That's Ocean City now. And we'd look then for this building. This V-shaped building called Sea Watch. Every year we went to Sea Watch. A bunch of condominiums that my, my in-laws would rent. And every single one of them had a view out to ocean water, right? 
There was an indoor pool, an outdoor pool, the ocean right there. didn't matter whether it was rainy or sunny or whatever. We would end up with our feet in the sand. That's my now, what, how old is he, 22? That's my now 22-year-old boy Isaac with me in a headlock. As you can tell, the grimaces, he's got strong grip. And then there'd be the boardwalk. Up and down the boardwalk, we'd ride on bikes. That's my daughter Alyssa, our middle child. I think she's about to turn three in that particular year in November, but she's sitting in front of a sign because there were favorite foods at the boardwalk, favorite haunts at the boardwalk. Anybody who's been to Ocean City repeatedly, you would know these names. Ponzetti's Pizza, Fisher's Popcorn, or Thrasher's Fries. And here they are, my oldest Emily, my middle child Alyssa, Isaac at that point yet unborn and that's dad dad there in the Surrey bike. We would all load up often and ride these bikes up and down the boardwalk to these places. Sometime later in a conversation amazing how often my daughter Emily and her grandfather dad dad might get into a little argument about one thing or another this particular day at one point dad dad says well of course you know french fries he's not there in front of thrasher's french fries we're, we're at another location at this point but he their french fries must have been involved my wife was overhearing this conversation in parts and dad dad says to Emily of course you know french fries are made from potatoes and Emily says, no, they're not. Yeah, 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 French fries are made from potatoes. No, they're not. Well, yes, they are. No, they're not made from potatoes. Yes, they are made from... And the two children begin to argue very vigorously. Till finally, Dad, Dad says, well, ask your mother where French fries come from. And Emily goes to Mom, Mommy, where do French fries come from? And only having half listened previous to this, she just blurted, well, potatoes. Ah. And in that moment, because the right person said it, finally Emily was won over. It didn't matter what Dad Dad was saying. She was not, she was certain he was wrong. So she was not yet able to be certain that potatoes are the source of French fries until Mommy said it. And I wonder... If there's someone we should listen to today to create the kind of certainty that would change everything in our lives, if mommy would clarify that french fries come from potatoes today. And John would write it in 1 John. I want you to know this. <laughs> french fries do come from potatoes. I want you to know this so that you can be certain you have eternal life. And so, on this subject of certainty, I invite you to dip into a book that is very confusing and can make us sometimes feel very uncertain. What is Paul even talking about? If you've read much of Paul, uh, you, you, you know, boy, I have to stop, I have to slow down, I have to kind of unpack the wording. And we're going to do a little bit of that in the eighth chapter of Romans, the book of Romans. The chapter starts, 
having come rushing out of the seventh chapter, and in fact, this is a connector verse. It says, therefore, in other words, reach back and grab chapter seven. We'll go back and get it in a minute, but it says this, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want you to know you have eternal life. There's no condemnation for those who, are, who have eternal life. Well, are they sinners? All have sinned and come short of the, of the glory of God. Yeah. Our, our greatest attributes, our best actions are as filthy rags. But the deal is, if you're in Christ, you have eternal life. If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. So what does this look like? How can, because it's, it's all fine and dandy. It's all great to say, I, 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 I want eternal life. I'm studying about eternal life. I'm I'm unpacking, I'm hanging out I'm with people who, who say they want eternal life too. There, there are certain attributes and actions and boy, it'd be great if we could just build a list and if you do this, 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 and this, then you know you've got eternal life. Like if you eat that and you don't eat that and you wear that and you don't wear that and maybe you don't dance or maybe you go to church on Sabbath or you do, is that how you can tell you're in Christ? And Paul says, whoa, whoa, not, not, no, it's not the outward stuff. This is something, this little checklist which we're going to have two boxes to check off in Romans chapter 8 it's all on the inside you and I we can fake it have you ever been around somebody who fakes that they want to be around you I got to tell you when I uh, got engaged and then became married I'd have some of my really good friends who were not married yet ask me so what's it like and I would have to tell them look it just destroys dating to be married to have that one, are, are we, are we, do you like me as much as I like you? I can't, I, did you say yes to going on this date just simply because you couldn't figure out the right way to say no, so now we're going to go on a date that actually lives out the word no? Is that the way this is all working? Or do you actually want to be with me? How could I tell, oh boy, I tell you what, to know the love of my wife, to be secure in it, to be certain about it, not constantly kind of hanging off the edge by by a thread for dear life, hoping that this relationship could possibly, maybe, if all the right things were to happen, be secure. And, oh, I don't know, what if I blow it one day? What if I make a mistake in my marriage? Oh, to have certainty and security and commitment. And Jesus says, my commitment to you is complete, and you can be certain. Want to know how? Let's dig in a little bit further. So, the eighth chapter Maybe we'll go to verse 5 for a moment. Those who live according to the flesh, Paul says, have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. And in walks logic from Paul that's a perfect example of how confusing sometimes Romans can be. Wait, what? I, I, so there's Spirit and there's flesh. Flesh, bad. Spirit, Good. Okay, so I'm, I'm working toward this thing. I want to be certain that I have eternal life. I'd like to know about that. Uh, I want to be in Christ Jesus where there is no condemnation. And one of my clues here is that having the Spirit is a part of that in Christ and being just ruled by my flesh is being out of Christ where maybe there is condemnation. Uh, how do we work from here? So the sixth verse, the mind governed by the flesh is death. Look, you and I are born in our sinful state and it is death itself. We need rescue from Jesus, right? 
And we know his position toward us as represented on the cross. He is going to give everything for us. Now it's our turn in this relationship. He has asked us if we will come into the relationship. And now it's our turn to make a decision about that. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. I want to make a suggestion as we go through this little section of Romans chapter 8. What we're going to notice is that we, human beings, are hostile. The question is not, are you a person who is hostile? The question is, what are you hostile towards? In other words, and by the way, I think it's brilliant that Ellen White would have put together a set of books from beginning to end and call it the conflict of the ages, that there is a conflict going on. You and I are in a conflict. There's nobody who's outside of this conflict. You're in a conflict. You're in a battle. You're in a war. You're in hostilities. The question is, which side of this are you on? And Paul is saying, look, if you don't have the spirit, if you're not in Christ, then your hostility is directed toward God. You're hostile to God. If you are ruled by your own flesh, you are hostile to God. But if you have the spirit in you, if you are in Christ Jesus, then your hostility isn't toward God. You've decided the direction of your hostility is going to be elsewhere. And by the way, we can fake where our hostilities are directed. We can fake that we're on God's side, on the outside. So I'm going to say it right now. What we're going to talk about today, you can know, and I can only hope for you. But you can know for you. You don't need to leave this topic, this passage, these pages of Romans unclear. You can be certain Verse 8, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are in the realm of the flesh, but are, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. So here we go. You're on one side or the other. Your own flesh, and by the way, if you want to just take a second and review how well we do on our own, our capacity to save our world, save ourselves, save our relationships without Jesus, without God, we're in deep trouble. And we are, if we choose ourselves, we are battling against the Spirit, battling against Christ, battling against God, and battling against the certainty of an eternal life in Him. So you're either in the realm of the flesh or the realm of the Spirit. Okay, all right. I'm kind of grappling with that. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, we've talked about being in Christ, Christ in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. I just want to say, there, there is this... There are a couple of different themes that are being interwoven here. Number one is this question of whose side are you on? Where is your energy directed? Are you hostile toward God or are you hostile toward your own flesh? And then there's this interesting thing. If you are on God's side, if you are in Christ, Christ is in you, the Spirit in you, if you're in that grouping, then there is a certainty and there is an inheritance that is promised to you. And part of that promised inheritance is resurrection and a brand new body. It changes everything. 
Kind of like Groundhog Day, if you knew that you were always going to wake up the next day, then death would not feel quite the same. Of course, you're stuck in Groundhog's Day there in Punxsutawney. In this particular inheritance, you have eternal life in the preferred choice of being in heaven and this new earth. And so God says, look, my sons, my daughters, they have an inheritance. It includes the resurrection. It includes a new body. And if you, by the way, are 56 like I am, you know you're in a losing battle with your body. Your body is betraying you and turning against you. Some of you are a lot younger than that, and you know it to be true. Some of us have friends at very young age that have had all kinds of calamity in their own physical health. But maybe not. Maybe you're 90. You know your body is getting away from you. Could be somebody's getting close to 100. Yeah, well, okay, great. We don't know too many 100-year-olds, and we don't, I don't know any 120-year-olds or 140-year-olds. It's getting away from us. This is a part of the inheritance, is that we need not fear for our future. We will be given a new body, we will be given a new earth, and we will be given complete access to this God in our inheritance. So how can we know whether we are in him or not? Is it just lip service? But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. In verse 12, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. That's what we're battling against. For you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Okay, so this inheritance, this certainty, this eternal life, here's checkbox number one. It's hinted at in earlier verses. It's definitely spoken of in the seventh chapter, but right here there's this interesting thing where Paul writes that you may die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And sometimes when you read things like this, you might, for instance here, be, be tempted to think, if you can get good enough to no longer ever perform a misdeed, then you would live. But that's not the language, and if you dig into it in the original language, what you'll find is being said is not the point about whether you have a misdeed or not. The point is, what is your reaction to your misdeeds? Are you wielding a sword to put to death the misdeeds that you have? What is your posture towards your misdeeds? We told you already that if you are of the flesh, your posture towards God is one of hostility. And here's the flip side. If you're on God's side, if you have invited the Spirit into your life, if this, a manifestation of whether the Spirit is in your life or not is your response to your own misdeeds. And I can't tell you about that. Only you could tell from the inside out. You hear it in Paul's words in the seventh chapter where he talks. You remember it? He says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And I've come to grips with the fact there is a war raging in, from the inside. I don't need anybody else on the outside warring against me. It's in my own flesh that I have a war and a battle. I have to fight against me. And that's the question. Is the Spirit... In you, have you taken hold of the Spirit? Have you invited the Spirit in? A common denominator, an indicator of the presence of the Spirit in your life in this passage is not so much the point about whether you have a misdeed. But what is your posture toward misdeeds? 
Are you trying to build a world in which you can argue for the opportunity for those misdeeds? Well, but they did. But, well, you know, it's not that bad. And by the way, who should be judging anybody anyway? Are you trying to create a secret, walled-up part of your life where you can live in this world of your misdeeds and then you can come out to all the other individuals who never know about what's behind that wall? And you can act like a God follower while back behind the wall you're not? What is your posture? To, it's not about, not a word in this passage will be spent on your performance. It will be spent on your posture. And by the way, this is a verb of continuation. But if by the Spirit you are in a process of continually putting to death the misdeeds. I don't know. I, I have a son who is very interested in uh, computer games. And every once in a while I'll see some version of a computer game where he's fighting off something. And they just keep coming. And they keep coming. And they keep coming. Are you in a posture of fighting off the misdeeds of being upset by the misdeeds, of hating the misdeeds. That's the way Paul describes it right before saying there is though no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. He is saying, look, I've got this battle going on in me, but I am in Jesus Christ. And so he's helping me with it, and I don't know exactly how long it's going to take me to get over that thing or that thing or that thing. It may even be in a twinkling of an eye as I am changed. I don't know about it. It might be the resurrection itself. All I know is this. I'm in a war. Jesus and me in a war against these actions against these things and when I, when I do this thing and by the way you know the things that you are most prone to slip and fall over. You know the things that you have done so many times it just, it's, it's nonsense. You know the things you are naturally blind to, the, the, the moments that just get up in your throat and you say the wrong thing, you do the wrong, you, you know the stuff about you. I sure hope you do, and if you don't, then Jesus Christ wants to bring a mirror up and say, look, let's take a look at some of this because you and I need to battle that stuff. But your certainty with Jesus will not be based on you performing well enough. If somebody's convicted you of that, we need to get rid of it. It's going to be based on whether you have claimed fully God in your life and you've said, I'm on your side and we're going to fight this th these things. And when I do slip and fall, I'm on the warpath about it. I am against these misdeeds, not somehow even subtly for them. That's checkbox number one. You want to know if you are living in the spirit, which by the way entitles you to the inheritance. One of the indicators is how do you feel about it when you realize your misdeed? If you are upset by it, if you are hurt by it, if you are angry by it, frustrated, at war with it, that is a sign the Spirit is working in my life. Verse 14 goes on. I want to jump in just a second, but it says, for those who are led by the Spirit are of God, are the children of God. Not might be if they do this and do this and do this. Not could be. Not that's the first step of, but you are. If you're led by the Spirit, you are you are the children of God and led by the Spirit even when doing misdeeds, your reaction to those misdeeds 
putting those misdeeds to death in some journey that you are on, in a battle that you are in. If you're led by the Spirit, you are the children of God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. We are the children of God. We are, oh my goodness, if every day I could wake up and just say, ah, okay. This I know. I am the son of Jesus Christ. He has adopted me. I am a child of God. That's where my, that's my, grandest, greatest, most clear identity is that I am a child of God. The Spirit has been offered to me and I've claimed it. I'm claiming it. And I can live through this day with certainty. Now, of course, you can play games with that, but here are the game checks. Number one, how do you feel about it when you slip and fall, when you have a misdeed, when you're facing your misdeeds? For those who are led by the Spirit of God, verse 14, are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And you now lay claim to the inheritance. You're not some good friend, some great neighbor, some first pick on the ball field. You are a child, son, daughter of God. Unqualified. Certain. And then the 15th verse says, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. These two check boxes. Here they are. Check. Number one, that I am on Jesus' side against my misdeeds. That I am battling my flesh. I am in a war. I'm, a, I'm, I'm wearing the uniform professed on the one side and not the other. And the second, we, you, I, we cry, Abba, Father. And you've heard it said, no other name by which we are saved. If you claim the name of Jesus Christ, and of course that gets, that gets kind of interesting because some will say, okay, so all you have to do is you, you just pray the name of Jesus. Just say the name of Jesus. Pray the name of Jesus. It's not that outward thing. It's the inward thing. And, and as a tip off to this, notice the language in the Greek that we cry. This is a guttural. Uh, this is a vulnerable. This is the kind of thing you wouldn't do normally. You, you could even feel shame for having done so. But it's, it's, who cares? I need you. I cry out. It's that moment in the, in the movie where if, if not for some profession, he's going to lose her. And he cries out. This is a guttural cry to God. This isn't just saying, okay, all right, so the, the, the recipe is I say Jesus' name, then I get to live forever? Okay, Jesus. No, we cry out. And what do we cry? We cry out, Abba, Father. And if you're unclear about this, we have, we have a way of doing this in Scripture. Reading, 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 rereading, or quoting, saying it, and then the original idea kind of gets mushed into a little soft thing, not clear on what it all, we know that's another name for Father. No, it's, this is different. This is the cry of a small child. Daddy. Daddy. Some of you parents, I don't know, Matt, what do your kids call you? Dad? Did they ever call you daddy? 
Yeah, and then they get older. And they stop. Because that's not cool. It's a little more grown-up to say dad. It's daddy, daddy, and then that's, wow, that sounds way too vulnerable, way too, I mean, uh, <clears throat> dad. And so we pray, our Father, which art in heaven. You know, we throw on some sprinkled good King Jamesian in there too. Not vulnerable, daddy. It makes me think a little bit of when I was younger, and I may have told you this story before, if so, forgive me, but I grew fairly quickly during certain years of my life, and uh, maybe you've had them too. I had growing pains in my legs. The way this would work, especially on days that I might run a lot, and I was an active child, so I was, that was many days. I, I have a vivid memory of uh, one particular Sabbath when my father as a pastor went to all three churches in a church district separated by about 100 miles. And so it was a, a one church early, one church right before noon. Then we drove to another church a long distance and ended up at, a, at another church late in the afternoon. And then there was a church social and there was all kinds of food and games and we were running, running, running and then drove home late, late at night getting home. And this particular night it happened to me just like it had a few others. I'm lying in bed and I have fallen asleep and then I wake back up because the pain in my legs, the ache in my legs is so extreme. I can't sleep. I'm a little guy. My bedroom upstairs, I crawl out of it. I remember lying at the top of the stairs trying to decide if I can get down the stairs to my parents' bedroom crawling down the stairs, beginning to cry, I find my way into my parents' bedroom and I lie on the carpet beside my parents' bed on my father's side as my father snores. And I lie there crying from the pain, trying to not, trying to figure out, can I do, can I just get, go back upstairs? I, I don't want to wake him up. But finally, perching on the edge of the bed, I call out, tears streaming down my face. Daddy. Daddy. And my father wakes up and he swings his legs out of the bed. And by this point, it's happened enough times that he's not surprised by it. He knows what's going on because I'm half lying, half kneeling at the side of the bed. And he scoops me up and he carries me up to my bed and he lays me in the bed and he goes and he gets some ointment and he rubs my legs whispering a story until I can fall asleep. Every time. Why is it that we grow out of that? Daddy. I don't know what's been going on in your life but I, I'm tempted to think you need the kind of father that would swing his legs out of bed in the middle of the night and carry you some distance and keep whispering your story that he means for you to live as you grow so peaceful and comfortable that you could even fall asleep. Checkbox number two, if you want to know if the spirit is in you. Do you have a hunger to call out, cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy? I don't care if it even makes me look silly to somebody else out there. And by the way, it's not about proving myself to them because they won't be able to tell whether it's real or not anyway. It's only from the inside out that this can be lived. Abba, Daddy, I need you today. I need you today. Father, today, this has been a great day. 
and I need you to know about it. I want you to know about it. Hey, Dad, have you ever done something that you feel like really overcame a hurdle, an obstacle? You feel a little bit proud of yourself, but you don't feel comfortable sharing that with everybody else because it seems like that would be too much bragging. But you could go to Dad. Hey, Dad, check it out. And he would say, do you mind? I'd like to hang that on my refrigerator. I'd like to frame that and put that in my office. Look at my son. Look at the one who calls me daddy. Or are you more tempted like the teen dropped off at the high school to, you know, if dad, I, I have vivid memories of a couple of different moments like this. My son getting out of the car. Hey, hey Isaac, I love you. Yeah, dad, thanks. Now I love you. And I would joke with him. I'm going to just keep calling out louder and louder. I love you. I love you. You know the right response. I love you, Dad. Love you too. Abba. Daddy. Right now, whatever you've been experiencing in your spiritual journey, know this. Jesus wants you to know you are safe, you are secure. You are an inheritor of the kingdom, a son, a daughter of the almighty, powerful God, our dad, even daddy. And the way to that certainty is to invite the spirit to come into your life. You'll know the spirit. You haven't just brushed the spirit aside or played some weird spiritual game by the fact that that spirit, if you keep asking Jesus in, it will turn you into an enemy of your own sin. It will turn you into a warrior against your misdeeds. Doesn't mean you won't slip and fall. Doesn't mean you won't have a problem. But when that happens, like Paul would say, the thing I don't want... It's the thing I'm fighting with right now. And number two, as you invite the Spirit into your life, as you rehearse the Spirit in your life, and you can know there's a problem if this isn't happening, it repeatedly, daily, you will have moments of daddy conversation, something you need, something you want him to know, some question you have. Your mind will turn to him. It's not some contest but you can look for those evidences of the spirit and you when you hear it when you see it you can know you are a son or a daughter you are a child of God and being a child of God gives you certainty of your eternal life I write these things so that you can know I believe it hurts God deeply when I am not sure where I stand with him. Lord God, we claim certainty in you. I thank you for laboring with me, sending your spirit to me, convicting me turning me against my own misdeeds. Thank you. You know that I've, I've got all kinds of problems and I'm stuck in so many of them. It feels like I need your help in all of that. 
But you will not find me resistant. You will not find me longing to go back to the way it was. Lord God, heal me, change me, grow me, however quickly you want. But in the meantime, I will fight these misdeeds. My posture will be one of hostility to my flesh and longing for you. So, Daddy, carry me, grow me, soothe me, tell me the story of my life in you so that I can live today certain in Jesus. Amen. And a happy Sabbath to you. We'll talk again next week.